You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Hey, before we, uh, before we jump into this morning, I, I want to make an announcement um, that over the last several years now, we have been very fortunate and very blessed by the incredible piano gifting of uh, Alvaro Agudelo. And uh, it is... Yeah, come on out. And... Um, it is his last Sunday serving with us. Um, him and Tana are going to be here for the next few weeks as they prepare to move, but they're going to be moving. What? Where? Remind me where? Lindell. Lindell. Uh, Lindell, Texas. And so uh, they're, they're just kind of trusting by faith right now that this is where God wants them, and, and he's opened a lot of doors to them that they could not open on their own. And uh, we're still going to see them from time to time. In fact, actually, we're going to a conference in New York City together soon uh, for a mutual ministry that they actually got me involved in. Uh, I contribute now for a, a ministry called Mockingbird, and I was introduced to Mockingbird through the Agadellos, and so they've just been a really special couple to us. Um, I uh, first met Al, and I did not know he was a pianist, and he asked me for a recommendation for a keyboard, and I thought he was learning how to play piano. <laughs> and so I gave him a couple recommendations, and about two weeks later, James came to me and he said, hey, you ought, to, you ought to see if Alvaro wants to play, you know, keys in the praise band. And I was like, well, I think it's a little early for that. I mean, he's, <laughs> I don't know if he's even bought one. And he goes he's got a master's degree in piano performance. And I was like, what? <laughs> and as it turns out, he's the best pianist I've ever played with in my life. And uh, yeah, and so we, we're grateful for you. And let me, let me pray for you and, uh, and, and your family. Father, thank you for Al and, and for Tana and for the impact that they've had here. And, and just we, we pray that you would richly bless them as well as they move, um, that they would not be too distant, that we'd still see them from time to time. We know that wherever they go, you're going to use them in the way that you use them. And, and uh, we're, we're excited to see how that plays out. But we're certainly sad to see them go. Uh, but we're excited and we're trusting you like they are. And so uh, we just want to pray blessing over them and uh, express our gratitude to you for bringing them to this church, God. We love you. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, man. Yeah, absolutely. Tana's on the back camera back there, and you can go give her a big high five as well. She's, uh, yeah. So we got to find somebody that can put the camera on me, you know? I mean, that's, this is an important gift. I'm just kidding. I don't care about that. Good morning. We're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're here with us. Open your Bibles to the book of Ezra. We're in the middle right now of a series called Under the Influence, which has been a verse-by-verse study through actually the book of Nehemiah. And we've been discussing how God uses average, ordinary people uh, to influence others around them in their lives. And, and what we've learned is that there's really not a lot of qualifications that you need in order for God to use you. He's not that interested in your talents or your education or your past. Um, those things don't really amount to much of anything in comparison to the, the equipping that God will do in you when he chooses to use you. All it really requires is just a desire to be used by God and a willingness for um, to allow him to do that, really. That, that's what it comes down to. And we've seen those characteristics so far play out in Nehemiah. Uh, last week, we took a little detour through the book of Jeremiah, and we saw those same characteristics in Jeremiah as well. And this morning, <coughs> we're going to see the same characteristics in Ezra. Uh, I think um, 
Every week so far, we have talked about how God brought his people uh, back to Jerusalem out of Babylonian exile and the way that that kind of went down. If you remember all the way back to Jeremiah, Jeremiah prophesied that um, the Jews would go into Babylonian captivity in Judah. Jerusalem was going to get sacked, and they were going to go into captivity, into exile for 70 years. Uh, Last week, we were in Jeremiah. We read his letter uh, to the people there, uh, telling them to essentially embrace your circumstances. You're not going anywhere, right? Build a house, plant a garden, have a family. This is going to take a little while. Embrace your circumstances right where you are. And he said, resist opposition. Uh, you have false prophets in your midst that are going to say to you the things that you want to hear. Don't listen to them. They're lying to you. They weren't sent by God. So you, you need to resist the external and the internal opposition, your own flesh that wants to move you away sooner than than." Uh, later, and and then you just need to be patient, because ultimately, 70 years is a long time. And and as we read the Old Testament, and and it develops its history out, after that 70-year period, God is faithful to what he said he would do through Jeremiah. He ends up bringing the people back out of Persian captivity, because in the time of that 70-year period, Babylon ends up getting overtaken by Persia. And their return to the land happens in three phases, three distinct phases. Phase one, and I think we've talked about these every week. You're going to know them hopefully by heart by the time the series is over with. Phase one begins with who? Anyone remember? Zerubbabel, right, absolutely. And his task is to go and rebuild the temple. When, when Babylon comes in and sacks Jerusalem, they destroy the temple. And so uh, Zerubbabel is charged to come in and rebuild the temple. Phase two happens about 60 years after that uh, under the leadership of a man named Ezra to reestablish the law. Now that the temple is in full operation, the Mosaic law needs to be reinstituted so that the people of God are living according to the customs that God has set forth. And then in phase three, which is where we've spent most of our time, we learn that God uses Nehemiah to fortify, rebuild and fortify the walls and the city gates to protect the city from outside uh, attack. And and again, we've spent most of our time in this series in phase three. Uh, Phases one and two, interestingly, are chronicled in another book, the book of Ezra. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago. This is kind of just more than anything a helpful Bible study tip. Um, That in the Old Testament, the Jewish Old Testament, originally, Ezra and Nehemiah are actually one book. They're just one book. It's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And that really makes a lot of sense when you consider that both of these tell one story. It's the story of God bringing his people back to Jerusalem in three distinct phases. Ezra's chapter, uh, Ezra chapters 1 through 6 uh, is phase 1, that's Zerubbabel. Ezra 7 through 10 is phase 2, and then Nehemiah is phase 3. All of them are telling the same story. And so originally, it, it makes sense that it was the same book. Um, This morning, we're going to detour away from phase three and spend our time in phase two and talk about this individual named Ezra. Ezra is yet another example of uh, an influencer for the kingdom of God, specifically for his commitment to scripture. That's going to be the central theme this morning. His commitment to scripture is what makes him such a powerful influence. In fact, I've titled the message this morning, The Influence of the Word. But before we talk about that, let's talk about who, who Ezra is. Who is he? What do we know about him? Ezra 7.1 begins with three really important words. Another Bible study tip here. Now after this. And that begs a really important question. After what? 
right? It's an important question. Whenever you see those types of linking phrases, that's going to tell you something about the context of what's about to happen. If you go back one chapter into chapter 6, what you find is that in chapter 6, the temple has just been completed. Zerubbabel accomplished the mission. The temple is rebuilt, and all the families in Jerusalem celebrate the Passover together, which is a monumentally important celebration that they observed every year, remembering God's faithfulness to bring them out of Egypt. So Ezra 7.1, it says, Now after that, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, and then we get about three or four more verses of a bunch of names you would never want to try to pronounce in a Bible study right, in public. You ever done that when they're like, hey, read verses 5 through 7, and it's just names that you're like, I'm going to butcher every one of these, right? Um, the names are important. So genealogies are important. They're, they're, they're vastly underappreciated in our modern culture because we're not real big on genealogy. But genealogies are important for Bible study because they tell us a lot about the people that the genealogy belongs to. And usually there's a reason why we're given that. They're, they're trying to convey something about this individual. And for Ezra, that is also true. His line is filled with individuals, all of which are high priests. There are two in particular, though, that I want to draw your attention to. I won't go through all of them, but two of them that are very important for uh, understanding who Ezra is. The first one is Zadok. Zadok. He is, uh, sounds more like a bad guy in a Power Rangers movie than anything else. Um, I'm just being honest. Um, He's the high priest during the time of David's reign and shortly after into Solomon's reign. Um, David is uh, the most important king in all of the Old Testament. So all high priests are important, but Zadok is a high priest under the greatest king that has ever lived, David, the one who unifies the kingdoms, <clears throat> the one who God covenants with, and actually ultimately that covenant is fulfilled in Christ. When you get to Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy for Jesus, he says, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the Davidic fulfillment of what God is going to promise through David. So Zadok is a high priest under him. Really big deal. The second really big name is Aaron. Aaron is a uh, direct descendant of Levi, who is the father of the Levites, the priestly tribe. Um, he is the first ever high priest to live. And he's the brother of Moses, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. And so Ezra is a priest, and he's got a long lineage of priests in his line, two of which are extremely important, the high priest under uh, the greatest king that ever lived in David and the greatest uh, prophet that ever lived in Moses, in the Old Testament at least. So he's a big deal, but he is a big deal to his people. Do you know who he's not a big deal to? Artaxerxes and Persia. They could care less about any of this. They don't care. They've taken them captive. They're not interested in any of that. And what's interesting is, is his lineage is not going to influence much of, of any of what he's going to do. And in fact, it's not even really going to be uh, what God uses in order to bring about the change and the establishing of the law. What sets Ezra apart is not his lineage, but what's he, what he does in the meantime. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that meantime area. He didn't just sit around and twiddle his thumbs and wait for God to do something. He was preparing. I remember I said that, that the, uh, the, the meantime is, is not a waiting room, it's a training room. And he was training, he was preparing. And verse 10 tells us the kind of individual that he was and the kind of work that he was doing. It says, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So that's verse 10. He's, he is an important 
person, not because of his lineage, not because of who is in his line, not because he's related to Zadok or Aaron, but because he set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This just defines the kind of man that he was. In other words, he was an influencer, but first, he was under the influence himself of the Word of God. So, so this brings up an important point, that influencers for the kingdom must first come under the influence of Scripture. And I love the word here for heart. He had set his heart to study the, the, the law. Um, that word heart, it, it, it's a Hebrew word that means the whole of one's being. It's your whole self. You know, we talk about head, hands, and heart in here. It's a little bit different than what the Hebrew term means. The, the Hebrew term, the way this intends to convey, it's all of it. It's your head, hands, and your heart. It's the whole part of you. It's the every essence of you. In other words, he didn't approach the Bible casually. He put entirely the entirety of himself into the study of it and under the authority of it. He surrendered his whole self to the commands of it. He went all in. He left nothing behind. And so this morning, we're going to walk through these attributes, these three attributes, and talk about how we might also come under the influence of Scripture at City on a Hill in 2022. Does that sound good? So we're going to jump in. If you want to come under the influence of Scripture, first, we have to search the Scripture. Search the Scripture. Ezra 7.10. It says, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. Now, the word study, I'm not a huge fan of in this context. Um, the word in Hebrew, it comes from the Hebrew word daraz. It's a word that means to seek. But it actually implies something a little bit more nuanced than that. It really implies a... Um, a careful search, to conduct a careful search. And I like that terminology more than I like study. Study sounds a bit too academic. Uh, it's, it's very bland. Search better reflects what we're called to do in the Scriptures. Acts 17.11 talks about the Berean Christians. It says that they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, searching the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They were searching them daily. There's a sense of desperation here, Right? A desperate search through the Word. Think for a moment about a search party, conducting a search party to go out and find something that you're desperately trying to find. Reminds me of a story I read this week of a tour bus in Iceland um, that, that brought tourists from around the world on this trip through several of the landmarks in Iceland, one of which was the Elga Valley, uh, which is near a, a major volcano. So it's a volcanic valley. And they had stopped, and they were there to take pictures, and they could get out and walk around and kind of just see. There's so many different areas to explore and look at. Really beautiful uh, country. And uh, as they began to get back on the tour bus... Um, word started getting around that one of the women in the, the, the tour guide was, was missing. Not the guide, but one of the actual participants. She was missing. And, uh, and so they waited and they waited and, and things started to get a bit more urgent. Finally, they dispatched all of the people on the bus to go and try to find her. Uh, this was, you know, mid-late afternoon at this point, and, and, uh, and then it starts to get evening, and they're using their phones for flashlights, and they're having they're a couple flashlights that they had, and I mean, it, and it starts getting scary, right? Like, this woman has been gone for a long time, and this search goes well into the night, 3 a.m. They're still looking for this woman in this volcanic valley, starting to think the worst. You know, she's been kidnapped, she's died, a predator got her, like an animal predator. Uh, and, you know, things are, are not good, and then it finally occurred to them she was in the search party looking for herself. She had apparently come back to the bus to put on a jacket, and when they got back, the jacket was a different color than the shirt she was wearing, 
And someone was like, hey, did no one see the woman with the red shirt get back? And she's missing. And, and then it just spun off this whole search party. So she's looking for herself, right? There's a sense of desperation there, though. When you're looking and, and, and time moves on and you're going, oh, my gosh, are we going to ever find what we're looking for? That is the kind of desperation that Ezra comes to with the Scriptures. He sets his whole self into a desperate search. And it's not just something that Ezra does. It's emphasized in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. Psalm 119, verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Open my eyes, God, that I might see the beauty and the wonder of Scripture. Psalm 119.11, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I've stored it up. I've searched, and, and it was so valuable, and there was such desperation in my search that I've now stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against the Lord. Joshua 1.8, I love the book of Joshua um, because it's all about succession, and given the last couple years here at City on a Hill, it's really meant a lot to me personally. Uh, Joshua coming into the leadership role that Moses has now vacated. And, uh, and, and I have to imagine there were all kinds of questions going on in Joshua's mind about, you know, how, how are the people going to receive me? And I'm never going to fill the shoes of Moses. And, and what is God going to, you know, how is this all going to play out? And, and he's getting ready to take them across the Jordan River and into the promised land. And he has no idea what awaits him. And he, I imagine he's very nervous. And God comes to him in verse 8 of chapter 1 and says, This book of the law, Joshua, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. You see, in a, in a season of desperation for this man Joshua, God's, God's prescription to him was Scripture, the Word. Meditate on it. Don't let it depart from your mouth. In fact, the word meditate in Hebrew, it's a word that means to mutter, to mutter something under your breath. Very literally, to meditate on Scripture is to keep Scripture on and in your mouth at all times as you're saying it constantly to remind yourself. We see in the New Testament as well, Paul tells young Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That Greek phrase, do your best, it literally translated means be eager. In other words, he's saying be eager to present yourself as one who does the work to understand what Scripture says, to search it with desperation. You know, I think, I think one of the biggest strengths that we have as evangelicals is that we do a really good job of emphasizing the doing of Scripture, right, the commands of Scripture. And we'll talk about more of that in a moment because Ezra is very interested in that as well, but it's usually something that's very emphasized today in the church. We love applications. Don't give me all that theology, that confusing theology. It's just how does it apply to my life? What does it mean for me right now? And, and there's, there's something to be commend, commended to that, right? We, we need to be people of action. We need to allow the word to influence our decisions and our actions and all of that. It's a strength. But I would also submit to you that it's a weakness as well in that we can become overly apologetic whenever we talk about Scripture in more cerebral terms. So we'll use terms like, you know, that's just really academic or it's ivory tower, you know, it's very theoretical. It's almost a jab. It's almost said condescendingly to look down on Christian traditions that are a bit more heady in their approach to Scripture, and that is a problem. That's a problem that we need to, to address. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, a lawyer comes to Jesus to ask him a question. It's not a lawyer like you would think of today, but a man who is a, um, a student of and a teacher of the law, an expert in the law of Moses specifically. 
And he comes to Jesus in verse 30, 36, and he says, what is the great commandment in the law? I mean, this is a, this is a huge question. This would like, be like you coming up to me and saying, what is, the, what is the biggest commandment in the Bible, in the entire Bible? Now, I, you know, spoiler, Jesus tells us, so I'm just going to quote Jesus. But, um, but it's, a, it's a tall question. And Jesus answers him, verses 37 and 38. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. He's actually quoting Deuteronomy 6.5 here, and it's an, it's an incredibly important passage in Old Testament theology. It, it forms part of what we call the Shema, uh, which is, is a super important foundational passage in the book of Deuteronomy. And then he goes on in verses 39 and 40, and he, and he continues. He says, and a second is like the first. Oh, this is interesting. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I mean, that is a remarkable statement that Jesus is making there. He is saying, if you will do those two things, if you will love God and you will love your neighbor as yourself, you're essentially accomplishing everything written in the Bible. That's massive. It's a massive statement. We are really good at loving our neighbors as ourselves in evangelicalism. We're really good at talking about the one another's and the applications of Scripture, and how, we, and how we, we work these things out in our relationships, right? And I think, we're, I think we think we're pretty good at loving God. Raise your hand if you love God. I mean, every hand should go up in here, right? You're like, I'm only here because someone made me come. Hopefully not. But if you are, welcome. We love you anyways. Come get Jersey Mike's afterwards. Let's talk, right? <laughs> Newcomer's lunch. Um, we love God. But how do we love God? That's the real question. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. He tells us how we are supposed to love God. Look at verse 37. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. There's that word heart again. That idea of of your whole self. Love God with your whole being. With all of yourself. He says, love the Lord your God with all your soul. This refers to literally your life essence. the, The breath of life within you. The thing that makes your heart beat. Love God with that as well. But then he says this, love the Lord your God with all of your mind. Have you ever considered that? That God tells us to love him with our minds, with your intellect, with your understanding. Don't lose sight of this. Now listen to me. It doesn't mean that you have to be a scholar. It doesn't mean that you have to be an academic. But understand that just because you're not a scholar or an academic doesn't give you the right to check out on this one. You love the Lord your God with your mind, not with someone else's. With what you have, to the best of your ability, you use what God gave you to love him with it. Do you realize your mind is exactly as it is meant to be as God gave it to you, as God created it in you? You're meant to have the mind that you have. He doesn't look at you and go like, man, that's a crappy mind. He made the mind. (laughs) He gave it to you. The question for you is, will you surrender it back to him? Will you sacrifice and serve and learn and understand with the mind and thus surrender it back to him? You are are far more capable than you think. I will say that as your pastor. I've talked to so many of you. You're far more capable than you think at this stuff. You really are. I come across people all the time, and, and I'll, hear, I'll hear people say, you know, I have a hard time reading. I have a hard time reading. But statistics tell me 
that you spend roughly two to three hours a day on your phone reading social media posts. You don't seem to have a problem doing that. People say, you know what, Pastor Eric, I have a bad memory. But you remember your phone number and your address and, and the, the words to your favorite song. If I sang this, is this the real life? Case in point. Case in point. Listen to me. Let me say this gently to you, okay? A little tough love here. You don't have a bad memory. You have a selective memory. You aren't bad at reading. You're just really, really good at selective reading. You see, if you're going to be an influencer like Ezra, the first thing we have to do is come under the influence of the Word. And for starters, we do that by loving God with our mind, by studying, by conducting a desperate search through the Scriptures. Now, to be clear, we don't just learn for the sake of learning. And as I said, we love to apply it. Ezra loved to apply it. And so that's the second thing that we're going to see Ezra doing here. We search the Scripture, and second, we do what it says. Ezra 7.10, it says he had devoted himself to the observance of the law. He wasn't just committed, in other words, to searching it. He was committing to, to do what he found in it as well. The word observance here in the Hebrew, it's a word that means literally to do, to do the commands of Scripture. It's interesting to me, Ezra is never quoted in the New Testament at all, ever. Um, but the influence of doing the commands of Scripture is very felt in the New Testament. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes in James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word. Now, the question for all of your inquisitive minds out there is, why? Why should we do the commands of Scripture? I mean, it's a fair question. Apart from the fact that you can't really be obedient to God without doing the commands of Scripture, they're literally His commands. It's how we obey. There are some practical reasons as well. Uh, number one, it directs our decisions. It directs our decisions. Psalm 119, verse 105, it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In other words, whenever we do the commands of Scripture, it illuminates our path before us. It's our guide. It directs us. It directs our decisions. It moves us in the direction that God desires us to move, or at least it should. That's the, the, the point of it, the goal of it. Secondly, it detours us from sin. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2 tells us, what a blessed man will look like. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. In other words, the blessed man does not do those things. He is not under the influence of the world. Worldly influence will lead you into sin and disobedience. So what does he do? His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. There's that word meditate again, muttering it under his breath. That psalm is going to go on to say that he's like a tree planted next to streams of water that is, that it has everything it needs to grow and to, to mature and to bear fruit. In other words, when we give ourselves over to the studying of Scripture and, the, and then doing what it says, it takes us on a detour away from sin. Let me give you a truth. You will either be under the influence of the world or the word. There's no in-betweens. 
You'll either fit into one of those two categories. The blessed man delights in and is under the influence of the word of God. It detours him from sin. I want you to look at your life right now and ask the question, whose influence am I under? Whose influence am I under? The world's influence or the word's? The way you figure that out is just look at the choices you make and ask if they, do they line up to what Scripture says. If they don't, then you're not under the influence of the Word. Not right now. You can be, but not right now. We do what the Scripture says because it directs our decisions. It detours us from sin. Third, it defines our success. I think we get really weary of the term success in church today, mainly because of the, just the horrible work that prosperity gospel nonsense has done with the idea of success. But the Bible does speak a great deal to success and prosperity, just not the way that we think about success and prosperity. I quoted a moment ago Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. That's, remember, he says that in a moment of desperation. This is what God says to him to bring him comfort and to calm him. But why? Why does he say that? He goes on in verse 8. He says, So that you may be careful to do... There's that action according to all that is written in it. So be careful to do it, but then again, why? Why am I doing this, God? He says, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. God wants you to have success. Understand this, that the commandments of God, the commandments of Scripture, are meant for your benefit. They're meant to help you. They're for his glory and for your good. Obedience, so let me talk about this. There's this idea, and I... You know, it's not just in young people. All ages, I've heard this from all different walks of life and all different ages. There's this idea out there that the Bible is like the thief of joy, right? It's just a, it's just a joy killer. You know, if I follow the Bible, then I can't have any fun. It's just going to take all my fun away. I want you to follow that reasoning for a moment. Let's just trace this thing out, see where it takes us, Right? Imagine that you are tempted to do something that the Bible calls sin. And so the Bible says, don't do that. We'll use porn as an example. Let's get real practical. Porn. If you abstain from looking at porn, some guys will see that as like a, it's just a thief of joy. God doesn't want me to have fun. You know, I'm like, why shouldn't I be able to look at porn? I'm not hurting anybody. And apart from the fact that you're wrong, um, it's like, it's like, the Bible just doesn't want me to be happy, right? As if the sum goal of your life is happiness. It's a crappy goal. Get better goals. But let's talk about for a moment if you do. Let's say for a moment you say, you know what, forget the Bible. I'm not going to have my, my fun taken away, my happiness taken away. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, so you, you, look at, you look at porn. You get the immediate payoff, but then what, what happens? You look more, and then you look more. And you look more, and you, you, develop, you develop neuropathways that literally, physically addict your brain to what you're looking at. Your cognitive function changes at a fundamental level. Your ability to have intimacy in relationships decreases. Your relationships are affected. If you're married, you will likely experience trouble, if not divorce. Years down the line, you will come into this church and express deep regret that you said yes to something the Bible said no to. Understand, the Bible is not a thief of joy. Sin is a thief of joy. The Bible defines what success looks like. Now, it requires discipline, and it requires you saying no to your dumb flesh, 
It just wants to lead you to make dumb decisions all the time. But you have, to, you have control over that. If you have the Spirit of God, you can say no to that. It takes discipline. But God gives us that by his Spirit. Number four, it determines our durability. I love this one as well. Life is brutal, is it not? We can be honest about that. There have been times in my life I did not want to fight any longer. I was just like, man, I'm, I'm done. But listen, when we do what Scripture says to do, those actions determine our durability when life gets difficult. In Luke chapter 6, right now we're studying the gospel of Luke according, or, or the gospel of Luke in our life Bible studies. Uh, we won't get to chapter 6 for like four years um, at, the rate that we're, <laughs> at the rate we're going. We, I just wrote chapter, what is it, session 6, and we're still in chapter 1. Um, man, sorry. Uh, sorry, not sorry, really. Uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus asks this question. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? I mean, this question should shake you to the core. He says, why are you calling me Lord and then disobeying what I've said? That means I'm not really your Lord, is what he's getting at. He goes on in verse 47, he says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose... The stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Get what Jesus is saying here. He's saying the man who sets his heart on searching the scriptures and doing, it, doing what it says, like Ezra, he will build a foundation for his life that when bad things happen, and they will, they certainly will, when they happen, he won't be shaken. He'll be durable. He'll be able to last. He'll be able to, to weather the storm. But the one who doesn't, he gets destroyed the moment it gets difficult. He gets torn down the moment life begins to amp up. So you know, we're talking about influencing others. I can't think of a better way to influence someone in your life than the way that you handle life when it happens to you. Your durability when life becomes challenging, when life blows up in your face, when you lose a loved one, when you lose your job, when, when you find out some bad medical news that affects you or someone that you love, when something goes down that's big in your life, people are going to be watching you and they want to know how you're going to handle it. They're going to be watching you and thinking, how durable are they really? You know, they always talk about Jesus, but what about now? When are they going to crack? When is the pressure going to get to them? How much of this can they really take? And the answer to those questions, honestly, is greatly determined by not only how well you search the word in your day-to-day -day life, but how well you do what it says as well. If you want to be an influencer, we have to come under the influence of the word. And we do that by searching the scripture by doing what it says, and last we'll end here, by showing others how to do the same. Look at that last part of verse 10, Ezra chapter 7. It says, Ezra devoted himself to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. So Ezra saw the value of not only taking the word of God in, but giving away the word of God to other people. And what's amazing is we're going to see this actually play out. We're still a ways off, but uh, when James and I get to Nehemiah chapter 8, we see this take place with Ezra. Ezra is still alive by the time Nehemiah uh, comes and, and begins rebuilding the wall. And, and Ezra and Nehemiah work together. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. I'll just read it real fast. It says this, All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So bring the Bible. 
So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So first of all, let me just say, those of you who complain when I go over 40 minutes of preaching, these people paid attention for like six hours. All right? So just be glad I'm not under the influence of Ezra's preaching. All right? Uh, No way. I can never do that. All jokes aside... This is more or less a church service that we're seeing in Nehemiah chapter 8. The people are all gathered together. There's no live stream then, guys. Gathering matters, just for what it's worth. They gathered together. Ezra brought his Bible. He began to read out of it, and they listened, and it affected them. It influenced them. Verse 4, I love it. We get literally the first description of a pulpit ever. Verse 4, it says, And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. They were like, you know what he needs when he's reading out of that Bible? A giant wooden platform that he could put his iced coffee in. Mm. His influence was felt. This mattered. Like what he did mattered. It made a big impact. In, In Nehemiah 12, we find out the results of the people hearing the word being read. It says that abuses were rectified. People began to arrange to serve in the temple on a regular basis. His influence was felt through the community because of his commitment to the word, because he himself was under the influence of the word. He put his whole self into searching the scripture, doing what it says, and showing others how to do the same thing. And some of you may be thinking, well, I'm not a teacher like Ezra, so so how does this work for me? Isn't this just for teachers? Well, that's one of the, certainly one of the applications. If, if you can give it away by teaching. If you have the gift of teaching, then one question might be, are you using it right now? There's a lot of places that you can use that gift here. But what if you don't have the gift of teaching? What if you're like, nope, that is not me? There are more than, than just one way to give away what you get from the Scripture. You can give it away by making disciples. So not everyone has the gift of teaching. Everyone is commanded to make disciples. I won't read it because I want to I get us out of here on time. Uh, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus gives the great commission. And he says, baptize them, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Notice what he does not say in that verse. He does not say, teach them all that I have commanded you. Teach them Bible trivia. Give them all the facts. That's not what he says. He says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teach them to be obedient to everything that I have said. That's an important difference. In other words, you find someone in discipleship that you begin to influence. You share the gospel with them. You lead them to the Lord if they're not born again. You baptize. You have the privilege of baptizing them. How amazing is that? And then you teach them how to live out their faith. And I think we just, we really overcomplicate this. You know, what, well, what book do I use? The Bible. You don't need any other book. It doesn't have to be this, like, big formal thing. Call them. And catch up with them. Be their friend. Have a relationship with them. Hey, how are you doing? How's your Bible reading going? Do you have any, you've come across anything weird or confusing? Anything I can help you with? And, and, and check this out. If it's weird and confusing to you, be honest about that. You know what? I don't know the answer to that either. We should ask, we should ask Pastor Derek about that or, or, or our Bible study teacher or, or whoever. You can be honest about that. You come into church on Sunday? Yeah, I know you're tired, man. I know you've been working. But, but remember, man, this is, this is the most important day for us. This is when we gather together and we worship. Don't miss it. Don't miss out. You have a role to play here. You're, you're valued here. You're wanted here. You come in Wednesday night to the class or to the freedom group or to this or that. You know, you're, you're, I know you're tired. I know you work. Man, we're all tight. It's 2022. Everyone is tired. 
but, but are you going to, are you going to be there? This is how relational discipleship works. Now understand, if you're going to do this, you have to do this. You can't be like, hey, you coming to church Sunday? All right, great. No, I'm not. I'm going to be fishing, actually. Yeah, don't do that. You invite them. You show up. You give it away through discipleship. You give it away through parenting. This is another way we do it. Remember that verse, Deuteronomy 6.5, that Jesus quoted, that I said was a part of the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. He goes on in verses 6 through 9, and he says this, And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. In other words, parents, you give away what you get from the scripture in your day-to-day life with your kids. That's where it happens. This is your role. You are charged by God to do this. Again, this is something that we drastically overcomplicate. You know, like I've got to have a, a Bible study uh, every, every Tuesday at this time or three times a week at this time, and we're going to go through this. You don't have to, I mean, that's great if you're doing that, but that's not what this is saying. This is saying when you're at the dinner table, when you're getting ready for school, when you're at the store, when you're pushing the cart around the grocery store, when you are getting ready to go to bed, when you are mowing the lawn, when you are whatever you're doing. You're to be teaching them and instructing them along the way in the way of the Lord. One of the richest blessings in my life is the way my wife is able to interact with our children to work through their emotions when they have big emotions. Now, I grew up in a home where it was like, stop acting that way. You know, uh, stop doing that. Jessica has gotten so good at like, why are you feeling that way? That's a good question. I mean, they're little people, right? They're kids, but they're people. There's a reason why they act that way. And, and she has this in, uncanny ability to work through that and get them to a place where they, they're able to verbalize why they feel what they feel and, and how to better uh, express that feeling when it happens again. Such that uh, over Christmas, my youngest threw a fit over something that honestly she had every right to throw a fit over. She felt left out because she was left out. And, and everyone was kind of like, she needs to just get over it. And, she, you know, kind of the, including myself. And Jess was like, well, hold on a minute. Every one of you would be upset if you were left out. I'm like, yeah, fair point. And my, young, or my oldest, Cam, she's eight, and she goes, I got this, Mom. <laughs> and she runs upstairs. And about five minutes later, her and Lydia come down, happy as a lark, ready to participate. Because Cam is learning how to do this. Because she's got big feelings, and Jessica's been working with her longer. This is how you do that's That's discipling your kids. It doesn't have to be this formal thing. It's every day showing them how to, to walk according to the law of the Lord. Understand this. That is your job for your kids. That is not my job as your pastor. That is not our children pastor Emma's job. That is not the kids' ministry's job. We're here to help you and equip you and support you. Your job is to give away the word to your children. Now, the fortunate thing about all of this is that we have a children's pastor in Emma who's very passionate about this topic and wants to partner with you. She wants to help you. She's got a lot of resources over there. She's, she's willing to make herself available to help you with that, to meet with you and discuss those things with you. And so if you're sitting here right now feeling woefully unequipped to do this, right after this, when you go over to pick them up, stop in, give a word to Emma, get her number or her email or however y'all want to connect and connect and let us partner with you. Let us help you with this. If you're going to be an influencer, a good place to begin is coming under the influence of the word. How do you do that? You do that by giving your whole self over to the study of it. You conduct a, a desperate 
careful search through it. And as you learn what the Scripture says, you begin to do what it says. You put it into action. You become a doer of the Word. And then you show others how to do the same thing. And maybe it's through teaching. Maybe it's through just relational discipleship. Maybe it's through parenting. But understand, Ezra figured this out. And he influenced a lot of people as a result of it. I want you to think right now, how different would this community be because of your influence if you began to do this? Not city on a hill's influence, your influence on this community. What lives would God have you change by his power as a result of studying, doing, and giving it away? Make a decision right now. Commit right now. We have Bible studies. We have, all, we have everything you need right here. And if you don't know how, come talk to me. We'll connect you and get you in the right spot. Become an influencer, but first come under the influence of the word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God, the firm foundation upon which we stand, the, the true north, the measure of objective truth. It is trustworthy. It's living and active. We believe, God, that when we read the scripture, the scripture reads us as well. And so help us, God. Birth in us a desire, a burning fire to learn, to search it, to do it, and to teach others how to do the same thing. Father, I'm convinced that if, if the church does this, the community changes. Lives change as a result of that. So burden us with that desire to know more, to do what it says, and to teach others the same. We thank you for our elders that you have brought in. We thank you for, again, Mike and Marcus and their commitment here over the last few years. We pray blessing upon them. We thank you for, for Mitch and Robert as they step into this role and for the other four that are, that are also have been doing this for the last uh, one to two years. We're, we're grateful for the leadership you've established here. We're grateful for the baptisms this morning. We celebrate with both of them, Brian and Allison. And I pray that you'd continue to develop them in their lives and their walk with you. And I pray for those this morning who, um, in the future, you plan to see baptized here. And perhaps who you plan to raise up as elders. God, I, I pray that, that that work would begin this morning. We love you. God, we're excited to, to serve and worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you. We'll see you next Sunday. We do have newcomers lunch right after this, so uh, meet me over there if you like.